Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 17. I've mentioned a few times now that the structure of the book of Leviticus is fairly straightforward. Chapters 1 to 15 deal with the various sacrifices and rituals associated with tabernacle worship. Chapter 16 is the center and climax. It tells us all about the Day of Atonement. And then the last half of the book is dealing mostly with ritual and moral holiness. In fact, some scholars refer to all of chapters 17 to 25 as the Holiness Code. Now, of course, in a sense, all of Leviticus could be called the Holiness Code. The whole book is about how God is holy and people are sinful, and it is about how careful they need to be if they want to live their lives with God in their midst. The whole book is asking and answering the question, how can a sinful people return to their original and intended fellowship with a holy God? So the whole book from start to finish is a holiness code of sorts. But there is something distinct and logically uniform about chapters 17 to 25. Jewish scholar Baruch Levine says here about the holiness code, about this particular section of text we're entering into. It is, in effect, a priestly pronouncement of God's will, defining what the God of Israel requires of his people, closed quote. So if the Day of Atonement is depicting our return to God, then these subsequent chapters are dealing with how we must live as the people of God. In a sense, then, the second half of Leviticus is somewhat analogous to the second half of the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. In the first three chapters there, the Apostle Paul is telling us how to return to God. He's preaching the gospel. Then in the last three chapters, he is telling us how to live as a saved people. That's the same basic rhythm here. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it, As a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. This law effectively bans the killing of the main sacrificial animals anywhere outside the official tabernacle complex. The purpose of this legislation was to forbid any sacrifice in the desert to what are called here 
goat demons after whom they whore. So obviously there's a bit of a backstory here. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary says, the allusion here is to the kind of goat worship practiced in Lower Egypt, a form of idolatry with which the Israelites had evidently had some contact. The cult in question flourished in the eastern Delta region, and part of its abhorrent rituals involved goats copulating with women votaries, closed quote. A votary is a person undertaking a vow. So, apparently, there was a form of pagan worship that had been common in Egypt, where these people were from, that involved bestiality and ridiculous superstition, and God wanted to nip this practice in the bud. His people were not going to have anything to do with that sort of thing, and so he makes a law here that no one is allowed to sacrifice any animal associated with ritual or worship outside of the tabernacle complex. So if you saw a guy coming in from the desert with a goat skin draped over his shoulder, you would arrest that guy under the assumption that he had been participating in disgusting pagan rituals. If you wanted to kill an ox or a goat or a sheep, then you would have to take it to the tabernacle as a peace offering. The priest would slaughter the animal in the proper way. A portion would go to the priest, a portion would go to God, and the rest would be returned to you to eat with your friends and family. Now, in truth, that sounds more restrictive to us than it actually was at this point in Israelite history. At this point in the history of Israel, they didn't actually eat a lot of meat, and domesticated animals were too valuable for milk and milk byproducts to be used for food. But later in their history, when they were more settled, uh, when it was uh, approaching the time when they would enter into the land and they would perhaps want to kill and eat some domesticated animals, there was a modification made to this law. In Deuteronomy 12, 20 to 28, God says that they no longer have to take the animal to the tabernacle, but they do need to slaughter the animal in the proper way and dispose of the blood in a careful and respectful manner. And of course, they can't use it for idolatrous purposes. But here in Leviticus, we're very early on in the story. The people are marching through the desert. And due to their exposure to this bizarre pagan goat cult from Egypt, they are tempted to wander off and engage in pagan rituals. So, fairly strict and centralized process is commanded for handling the slaughter of these ritual animals. Verse 8, And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. So, if you are caught engaging in sacrificial rituals out in the desert, you will be cut off from your people. God is exclusive in his intimate relationships. There is no relationship with God conceived of in the Bible that allows you to have weekend flings with pagan deities. Or as we might say in the New Testament, if Jesus isn't your Lord, then he isn't your Savior. He is at the center or he is nowhere at all. Old Testament and New, God demands exclusive loyalty from his people. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26. If your love and loyalty to Jesus 
doesn't make every other love and loyalty in your life pale in comparison, Jesus says, then you aren't really worshiping God and you aren't in proper relationship with me. A relationship with God leaves no room for lesser rivals. That's the big picture idea being taught here. Verse 10, if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. This passage explains why it is that in the earlier chapters that we're talking about how the sacrifices in the tabernacle were to be performed, it made very clear that no one was to ever under any circumstances eat the blood. They were not to eat the fat because that was for God, and they were not to eat the blood, and here we're told why. The blood of these sacrificial animals represented the life. Verse 14 makes that explicit. For the life of every creature is its blood. R.K. Harrison says here, It is given particular sanctity because God has appointed the blood of clean animals as the means of atonement. So, because the blood of these particular animals is used by God to do sacred things, it is never to be used for mundane or profane purposes. You would never take the queen's goblet and use it to scoop the leaves out of your ease troughs because you don't use special things for common purposes. That's the idea here. God is embedding in the minds of the Israelites a deep respect for sacred blood. And if you're a Bible reader, then you know that this will come in handy later on. Now, it is also worth noting, given the sensitivity of some weaker brethren to the idea of blood transfusion, that the purpose of this tutelage in the Old Testament was concluded with the shedding of Christ's blood upon the cross. Thanks be to God. Verse 13. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. Here we have a variety of regulations related to the blood of animals that were not used for sacrificial purposes. If you went hunting and you killed an antelope, you didn't have to bring it to the tabernacle, but you did have to drain out the blood and bury it in the ground, both out of respect for the animal and also to ensure that no one passing by would be accidentally contaminated. We're also told here that the Israelites were not to eat any animal that died of its own or that was killed by beasts. This is a repetition or a clarification of what was said in Leviticus 11.39. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening, 
And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Our verses here in chapter 17 seem to be dealing with someone who ate the flesh of something that died on its own by accident, meaning he or she didn't know that it had died of its own. So if that happens, then there is a process of cleansing and purification to be undertaken before such a person can rejoin the worshiping community. If he doesn't do that, then he shall bear his iniquity. To summarize then, there are two main themes in this chapter. The first has to do with the importance of exclusive loyalty to God. If we worship God, then we must not worship pagan idols. Now, of course, in modern times, we are unlikely to be tempted to wander out in the desert to participate in the worship of goat demons. But Jesus told his disciples that they could not serve both God and money. He told them that they couldn't worship him and worship their family. You can only have one thing at the center of your affection and loyalty. So the principle still stands. If you want to worship God, then you need to give up the worship of lesser things. The second theme here has to do with respecting the power and sanctity of sacrificial blood. Of course, Bible readers will remember that this little bit of ritual law was respected, if not retained, in the New Testament. At the Jerusalem Council, the church talked about how to manage the influx of Gentiles into the church and how to handle table fellowship. And they sent a letter around telling the Gentiles to abstain from meat that had been killed by strangling. That is, meat that had not had the blood drained out of it. Now, scholars debate as to whether this was a permanent command or a temporary concession, as for a while, Jewish and Gentile Christians were co-mingling in many local churches. It does seem that the Apostle Paul did not view this as an absolute, but as a loving concession to Jewish sensibilities. So Gordon Wenham says here, Paul did not view eating blood as something that was intrinsically wrong, but held that it should be avoided whenever it might offend Jewish Christians, close quote. So obviously, this tutelage was effective. The power and sacredness of sacrificial blood had been ingrained upon the Jewish consciousness. But the ultimate referent for that was intended to be the blood of Jesus Christ shed upon the cross. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Hebrews 10.22, the apostle says there to the Hebrews, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. The apostle John in Revelation 12.11 says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. According to the New Testament, Christians have an exclusive death-defying loyalty to Jesus Christ because it is by his sacrificial blood shed for them on the cross that they are justified, redeemed, forgiven, purified, received, and empowered. As the old song says, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. 
Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.